Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Bathsheba Crocker, recently left her post as Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs. She served in various posts in the State Department for the entirety of the Obama administration. And before that, she worked in the office of the United Nations Special Envoy for Tsunami Recovery and Relief. And that, quote, special envoy was none other than Bill Clinton. Diplomacy runs in her family. Sheba and her father, Chester Crocker, are the first parent-child combination to have both served as assistant secretaries of state. Crocker the Elder was a noted Africa specialist who served in the Reagan administration, and Sheba describes how his influence and the influence of her mother's family, who were Jews who fled Eastern Europe to Zimbabwe, had a profound impact on her worldview. Since leaving her post, Sheba admits that she has more time on her hands these days, and you can find her on Twitter and also writing for Foreign Policy Magazine's Shadow Government Vertical. We kick off with a discussion about how the transition to the Trump administration is shaking up the State Department. And a big thank you to everyone who has been emailing me their suggestions about people I should interview or topics I should cover. I really do appreciate hearing from you. And even if you don't have any suggestions uh, for topics or people, just let me know what's on your mind. I really do uh, love learning from you. And now here is Bathsheba Crocker. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So in some ways, there's a normal pace of events. Um, and we and, and the State Department has been through many, many transitions. And I have lived through now two of them um, as a State Department official. Um, and so there is a normally a very regular process of getting to know the incoming officials who have been named uh, and preparing them for confirmation hearings and things like that. And that just did not happen in this transition. Uh, and so as much as the department, I think, uh, did its best uh, to prepare papers uh, to answer any requests that came up in a very timely fashion um, and to sort of do the normal thing. The normal thing was just not really being requested in this instance. And now we have we find ourselves in a situation where for the department in particular, I think it's just been a very uneasy two and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it started in the first week with, uh, with this uh, it sort of letting go of a a big slew of top officials in the department, which I think was very unsettling for career people, because Mm -hmm. many of the the those people were actually career people, right? The political appointees had already left. And so can you can you Um, just describe what happened? Because I would assume that like civil servants have kind of protections against just being summarily dismissed like that, right? So I, I'm, I can't claim to be an expert, um, although I used to be a civil servant in the State Department, so have some familiarity. But, um, but, and it's a little bit different if you're talking about foreign service officers or civil service officers. Okay. Uh, but what happened is when you are so, – so all of us who were in what's known as presidentially appointed positions, which basically means assistant secretary and above in the State Department and ambassadors who serve overseas, mm-hmm. uh, had been asked, which is – incredibly normal to turn in a resignation letter, which all of us had done. Those of us who were political appointees had no expectation that we would stay. And so we all left by January 20th latest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were some career officials who just hadn't heard, really, some who had put in requests, uh, as I understand it, although I don't know this personally, to extend, and others who had just never heard one way or the other. And so they did what seemed to be the responsible thing, which is show up at work on January 23rd to sort of keep the department operating and keep their bureaus having leadership in place and keep running. And these were, again, career people, foreign service officers civil service officers. 
at some point during that first week of the transition, and I don't know what what you know transpired to lead to this, but um, a big chunk of them were just told to leave and given a very short period of time in which to leave. But I think what's important to remember is that they weren't necessarily told to leave the department; they were told to leave their positions, mm-hmm. um, and that is something that you know an incoming team is entitled to do. I think what was a little bit unusual in this case was that uh, the um, the request seemed to go after a particular swath of people in the department who are in the the sort of management side of the department who deal with things like diplomatic security, so security of embassies overseas, and help for American citizens of all kinds who are overseas for whatever reason, whether you're a tourist or a spring breaker or business person or what have you, or you live overseas. Um, and then just the people who manage the department. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, and they were all let go sort of in one fell swoop. So not like policy um, and, uh, positions in, in, in any meaningful way. No, not all positions. Um, and not the positions below, but it would be sort of the head, right? The mm-hmm. political level positions in the bureaus and then the undersecretary. And some others were let go as well. Um, uh, regional or functional assistant secretaries, as they're known. So people who cover regions or people who cover particular functions. Um, and then there was the undersecretary who deals with arms control and nuclear disarmament issues, who was also let, who was also let go. And for some people, what that actually meant is that their careers were done. Because if they are senior enough in the Foreign Service uh, and they have enough longevity. They are protected as long as they're serving in a presidentially appointed post. But if they're no longer serving in that post, they're out. They're out of the Foreign Service. And so for some people, that actually meant, you know, on Wednesday, you thought you had a job. And on Friday, your job was done. Ah. Um, for, other, for other people, what that meant is that they were pushed out of their positions, but they can't just be summarily, as you said, dismissed from the civil service. Um, and as a foreign service officer, they may still, you know, they will have a certain period of time in which they can be placed in another position um, or else they will have to leave. So so Tillerson has been confirmed. He is the secretary of state as we speak. But it seems that all of these um, like undersecretary or assistant secretary or even maybe like deputy assistant secretary positions are are vacant. So like who's running the, the, the show? Who's running these 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 shops and, and these bureaus? So the way it works, and this is this is normal and usual, is that um, the principal deputies uh, in all of the bureaus will uh, will be in serve in acting capacities until there is someone named. But as you say, at the moment we have Secretary Tillerson now confirmed. A deputy secretary has not yet been named, so not confirmed. The undersecretaries have not yet been named. The assistant secretaries have not yet been named. Um, some of those positions may very well go to career foreign service or civil service officers, and 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 many are expected to go to political appointees, but none of those have even been named yet, um, let alone gone through what has become a very long um, and often torturous confirmation process through the Senate. Um, and uh, and so it could be some period of time during which we have people serving in these acting um, capacities, which they are very well capacitated to do. Uh, but what you lose often, and I think in particular in this case, um, is, uh, is the sort of the political level uh, clout and comfort with making in particular difficult decisions. Um, and so you sort of can keep the trains running, but you can't do much else than that. So what are, what are like the foreign policy writ large implications of, of that dynamic? Do you think that are coming down the pipe? Well, I think it will be, um, you know, I think it's just very difficult, right. To, um, to predict exactly what those could be. But if you face, so just as an example, if you work in the area of, say, the environment uh, or human rights, um, and if you look at human rights and you look at the area that I used to focus on, which is the Human Rights Council, um, and well, I still focus on, but from a different perspective, uh, with an upcoming session in March. I think there will now be a real question as to how the United States is going to engage in the Human Rights Council in Geneva. And what what that means is, is sort of a, an uneasiness about, well, exactly how are we gearing ourselves up for that council session? And what are our asks going to be of other countries? Are other countries even going to answer the phone call when we call them and ask them to go in and work with us on a particular issue that we're trying to push? Um, and uh, and so you can see it's sort of playing out in a number of different directions. But I think in the absence, and there's, there's just a sort of a big gap between people who might be is serving in an acting capacity in a bureau and the secretary of state. So sort of how do you get up that chain to figure out 
um, where you're going with any particular issue. And I and, and, and Secretary Tillerson having come in, I don't know how much of the staff he's brought in with him. He does not, again, have a deputy in place. Um, so you can you can anticipate that things will just, if they are serious policy decisions, um, take some period of time to get sorted. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, uh, and and so, again, you, you might be able to sort of do things like prepare some instructions on something, you know, the tap, prepare instructions for an embassy that might be dealing with something that's very normal, uh, uh, you know, run of business, but, but really not much more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for, and, and for some people, it's just sort of a waiting time for others. It might be a, a big level of anxiety because if you work on issues where there's just a real question, how this incoming, this new administration is now going to deal with it. Um, you're sort of wondering, you know, whether all of these things that you've been working on and are they going to be totally changed in the way that they're dealt with and questions like that. Um, so I would love to get your impressions on uh, Secretary of State Tillerson. You know, he's someone who, you know, is not one who has like a, a huge track record in, in foreign policy or even much of like a, a seemingly like an ideology that that is like discernible because he just doesn't have like that that kind of track record. So what what are your impressions of of him and of, uh, you know, the leadership style that he might bring to the State Department? Uh, so it's early days, obviously, and we don't have a lot to go on in terms of forming an impression. I think one thing that folks are looking at and, and that I've looked at um, uh, fairly closely is his the remarks that he made when uh, on his first day of work at the State Department. And obviously, he did go through a confirmation hearing. And I think the... Um, the, the takeaways so far are uh, are one that uh, he intends to be and certainly seems to be a very strong and capable manager. Um, and, you know, you've got tens of thousands of people all told around the world who work for the State Department, um, including several thousand in Washington. And uh, and so having somebody who's a good manager and who wants to, t- to take the time to focus on the on the, the health and and and, and more morale of the department um, is always is always something that's welcome. And I and I expect that that's something that he's going to take quite seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think then in terms of how he's going to approach some of these very difficult policy questions for him, it would seem to me one of the first things that he's going to have to worry about is carving out a, a relationship and a channel directly to uh, President Trump um, and to retaking for the department and for himself the appropriate ownership over issues that in this interim period before he was confirmed and in the very early weeks of the administration have sort of been lost a bit. So whether that's a question around um, who is going to be named as ambassadors and who is going to be named to fill out his team at the department, and I expect that he would want to have a significant say over that, or whether it's over um, policy issues, for example, this uh, refugee and immigration executive order Mm -hmm. that, um, that was put out where, as far as I understand, he was not confirmed yet. I don't think when that came out, yeah. and as far as I, as far as I understand and has been reported, he didn't know about it before it came out. That's and, the kind of thing that, go ahead. Yeah, no, it seems like there's no input from the state department as, as well. It would seem that it was kind of written exclusively in the white house, which might suggest, um, that, you know, foreign policy issues like that will be very centralized in, in the Trump white house. So that's certainly the way that it seems. I don't know that for a fact, mm-hmm. but that's what, what one hears, right? That it was written out of the White House with limited, if any, input from the State Department or Homeland Security or DOD um, or others that mm-hmm. may have, you know, that would have equities. Um, I think it's important always to remember when talking about the role of the State Department that ultimately the department is the face of the United States to the rest of the world um, in terms of being the first point of contact. And that will happen through our embassies overseas, or that will happen through embassies in Washington coming into the department. We're the ones that are always meant to answer for um, and explain and defend. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, We as the State Department um, uh, uh, things that, you know, things that the United States is doing. And so even when the State Department is not involved in a particular decision, uh, it's going to be Tillerson, if there's an ally who's angry, more most of the t- time who will get that first phone call um, or some lower level in the department. And so he's going to have to work that out, I think, in fairly short order. And I, my takeaway, one takeaway I have of him so far is he's a very strong personality. Um, you know, he, I think one of the things he said in his early remarks to the department is that he didn't have to take this job. He was intending to retire from Exxon, but he and his wife felt like this was an opportunity they shouldn't pass up. 
So all of which, you know, I think you're always in a better position when you don't need a job yeah. um, and expect that that will make him a little bit stronger in trying to carve out that space. But if he can't do that successfully for himself and for the department, I think that mm-hmm. the next few years are going to be very, very difficult from, a, from the from that perspective. Well, it, all, it also seemed that a lot of Democrats wanted to deny him uh, that job. I mean, he, there was like an unprecedented amount of opposition from the Democrats, I think based largely on his um, performance in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which from a Democratic perspective probably did not inspire much confidence, which I just say is probably opposed to Nikki Haley, who I think you know performed very fluidly and, 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 and uh, articulated a, a foreign policy vision that is kind of more in line with with what one might expect from sort of mainstream U.S. foreign policy, but but Tillerson apparently did not, um, and that created a lot of opposition, caused a lot of opposition on the Democrats. And I'm wondering if there are any real foreign policy implications, and I can't really think of any, of having uh, a nominee who was voted against by so many uh, Democrats. I mean, it's obviously not the way I would assume that you want to come into any position. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think it's true that it was a sort of historically high number of, of senators who voted against his confirmation. Uh, but he ultimately got through. I think, you know, the reality is um, the, the Republicans are the majority in the Senate. The Republicans are the majority in the House um, and the Republicans have the White House. And um, and so whether that has real for, you know, it, it may mean that if he has to go up on very dicey issues before the Senate, um, that the kind of grilling that he will get will be much more difficult. Um, and it is obviously easier to work when you can work across mm-hmm. the aisle and when you can, form, can you know, form partnerships on both sides. Um, I expect he'll probably over time be able to do that. I think you're right that some of that opposition was probably based on the confirmation hearing performance. I think some of it was based on on some concerns about, um, you know, how he will uh, deal with Russia in particular, which I think was a big topic of conversation during that hearing. Um, and in some way, he also probably, uh, you know, bore the brunt of the fact that he hadn't gotten through quite early in the confirmation process. Um, and so as these things started to come out of the White House that were more and more concerning, um, mm-hmm. those were more sort of taken out on him uh, in, in the final yeah, I analysis. Think I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, so I would love to, to um, pivot and learn more uh, about you and your background. You've been on my radar for, for a long time and you have a background in the UN. And um, I've even like read stuff that you've written in, in my old grad school classes. Um, so sorry I'm, about that. <laughs> no, I remember. I, I think I read something you wrote for my my old peacekeeping class back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me, I would love to learn more about you. Where you're from? So where where are you from? Where are you born? I was actually born in Washington D.C., about three blocks from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, perfect! What neighborhood? Uh, well, I was born at Georgetown University Hospital. Um, okay. So- I'm right around there in Glover Park area. Very good. Um, yeah, the and leafy um, part so of I'm DC. born and That was bred. my first. That was my first neighborhood when I moved to DC. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, okay. Good. So, so uh, what did your family work in in politics and policy? So, um, so interestingly. Uh, uh, yes, my dad did. Um, and in fact, my father was an assistant secretary of state uh, at the State Department for eight, eight years um, during the Reagan era. Um, and Chester, he was Chester Crocker? Chester Crocker. Oh, and, okay. Um, I was wondering so, what the connection or if there's yeah, a connection there. Yeah, yeah. So we are actually the first um, parent-child pair of assistant secretaries in the State Department history, a fact of which we are both very proud. Oh, very nice. Um, so I grew up um, sort of in and out of the department. He was there for a long time. Did you do Africa and, um, policy, right? That was Africa the, policy, yeah. yeah. And um, and I think he continues to hold the record for the longest-serving regional assistant secretary as they're known, assistant secretaries as they're known. So he was there for a long time, and um, and otherwise he has been a professor at Georgetown both before he went in and after. Um, and my mom was an attorney uh, before she retired here in Washington. So, um, so I came by this whole career, I think, in some ways, sort of honestly. Um, we, my mother is also from. Um, uh, she's from Zimbabwe, now Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia. So we spent a lot of time when I was growing up um, traveling and spent summers in Zimbabwe and. Um, and then my dad was in the department. So I just got into this foreign policy thing, uh, at a very early age, um, and sort of caught the bug and it never really left me. Well, so what years were you visiting, um, then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe? So most of it actually happened before 1980. So it was before, uh, before Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. And mm-hmm. then for various reasons, including 
being that that members of my mom's family moved away, um, uh, we didn't go as much. Mm. Um, um, were they I part actually, of like the purge, like Mugabe's purge of of white landowners? No, they were not uh, landowners. They were um, they my parent my mom's family w- uh, were actually Jews who fled the pogroms in the late eighteen hundreds from Eastern Europe, Poland, and Lithuania, and and headed down my grandmother's family to South Africa. Wait. My grandfather's family to what was now what what became Rhodesia. So both of my grandparents were actually born in, in Africa. Wait, so so there was a, a Jewish there were Jewish refugees to Rhodesia. I had not heard this. Is there yes, like there, a, a decent sized Jewish community there following World War Two? Um, so there was um, when my mom was growing up, uh, there was she grew up in, in Bulawayo, uh, which is the second biggest city in Zimbabwe. Um, and there was a population of about 8000 Jews uh, in that city, which is just unbelievable fact. I think isn't as well known, but because of when the um, because of the time period, it was sort of the diamond rush, and there was seen to be a lot of opportunity um, in that part of Africa, and so it was actually a destination for Jews who were fleeing Eastern Europe. Do, do you um, know how they settled on on uh, Rhodesia? Like, like what what their decision process was? I do not. I should, but I don't. That's um, fascinating to me. Yeah. So my grandfather was born there in 1905, and my grandmother was born in South Africa. Um, and my grandfather, uh, you know, was a huge member. He was a he was a really successful lawyer, a huge member of the community. He was a member of parliament. Um, my mom grew up there. He had eight. My grandfather had was came from a family of eight. So she had 27 first cousins in Bulawayo who all now have scattered all over the world. Um, but uh, but anyway, so it's a, it is a fascinating history. And um, and I think it, it added uh, to just my sort of understanding from an earlier age and, and deep interest in um, in all things international. And I, so I also have to mention on, on your dad's side that he was, you know, Republican, obviously serving during the, um, during the, the Reagan administration. Um, like, was there, was there like a, a clashes at that sort of the dinner table between you and he? You know, sometimes um, I suppose there may have been, although I came into my own um, uh, sort of persona in terms of my own belief in thinking of about foreign policy, um, you know, it's in high school. I went to a, a really liberal um, high school here in Washington, and um, and so so we were always very active. Um, but uh, but my my dad also comes from this sort of line of Republicans who don't really exist anymore, um, where there was, uh, it was, it was more difficult to find um, real clashes. Now, he worked on a particular issue on which there were an enormous number of clashes in the 1980s, needless to say, which was as South Africa under apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so that was a, a sort of an active topic of conversation, but especially in our later years, um, you know, since his time in that job, um, it's, there are not that many issues that we disagree on. And in fact, I think that's sort of indicative of how foreign policy used to really be. Um, it was There was an enormous amount of bipartisanship around a lot of issues, and it's become increasingly polarized in, in recent years. That was a time where there was a lot of polarization. I'm not trying to whitewash it. Mm-hmm. But I was also younger, right? And so, um, so the kinds of clashes that I could potentially have gotten into, um, certainly at this point in my career, um, were just not things that I was necessarily doing when I was 12 or whatever it was. Um, so did you, from just like a very early age, think that you wanted to to join the State Department to kind of get into the line of work that you, you saw your father doing? So it, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, but I, I kind of found my way there. When I was coming out of college, uh, I didn't exactly know uh, what I wanted to do and whether I knew I wanted to go to graduate school of some kind and my dad had gotten a PhD and my mom was a lawyer uh, and I couldn't really decide between one or the other exactly. So I decided to try to split the baby in a sense. And I uh, and I did a joint degree, a joint law degree and master's degree in international relations. I kind of knew that I didn't have it in me to do a PhD, but I wanted to have a little bit more of that kind of academic side. So I did that. Um, and then uh, and then when I was coming out of law school, I clerked for a year for a federal judge, but I. I had spent one summer, I spent one summer uh, in graduate school interning at the U.S. Embassy in 
Harare. So that took okay. me back to Zimbabwe. And actually, my grandfather died that summer that I was there. So it turned out to be sort of fortuitous that I was there because my grandmother after that left. But um, but another summer, I had spent interning at the State Department in Washington in the legal advisor's office. So coming out of law school, I was applying for legal jobs and applied to the State Department and got a job there in the legal advisor's office. So that's where I ended up starting my career. Where, oh, um, who was the, the Secretary of State? Was this the Clinton administration at this point, or was this Bush 1? So this Bush was the one? Clinton administration. No, this was the Clinton administration. Okay. So I came in in 97, so it was Madeleine Albright. Okay. Um, and um, and then, uh, and so, so you know, I didn't, I didn't, it was wasn't that from an early age, I said, I have to work at the State Department, but I wanted to do international stuff. And I wanted to work on international on foreign policy. Um, but I was a lawyer. So I sort of thought, well, if I go to the State Department, at least I'll get to work on issues that I really care about from the legal side. Um, and then that just things sort of mm-hmm. one thing led to another. So uh, at so, first, well, what kind of legal issues were you working on at, at the so time? When, I, when the, I went in, I was working at my first job there was as the economic sanctions lawyer. Okay, so what did that entail? Um, so, that's what I spent a couple years so that entails working on things like executive orders uh, that are imposing, uh, either reinstituting or, or re-upping or imposing sanctions on on countries for various reasons, um, and then dealing with pieces of legislation, either the implementation side of pieces of legislation that already exist that require the imposition of sanctions on on certain countries, or if there are pieces of legislation that the Congress is looking to pass, kind of responding to those from the State Department side and doing all of the legal work around that. And is, is it fair to say that this was a time when sanctions that, that the government imposed uh, were generally against other countries as opposed to individuals? I feel like there's been kind of a shift in recent years towards more individual targeted sanctions as opposed to countrywide sanctions. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, I hadn't really thought I hadn't really thought about it in a long time, but I think that's a, a pretty fair assessment. I mean, that, those were the, the bulk of what I did. Um, in fact, probably all of what I did were were country sanctions. Like Iran, Iraq, probably Iran. Yeah, Iran, yeah. Iraq, Syria, Cuba, North Korea, Sudan, Burma. All those. the same. Well, except Burma. These yeah. Things, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so um, how long did you did you last in that in that position? So I lasted in that position shorter than I would have anticipated because I was asked fairly early on if I'd be interested in applying to come over and be the um, the executive assistant to uh, the deputy national security advisor, who at that time was Jim Steinberg in the Clinton White House. And um, and so I did apply and got that job. And I went on detail from the State Department to go do that, which I did for 13 months. Oh, okay. So um, you got like the different perspective on, on the foreign policy making apparatus. Correct, um, which was great, um, and it was a, a, a you know it was near the end of the Clinton administration. I was there from uh, June of nineteen ninety nine to July of two thousand. So the Kosovo uh, and, crisis probably like dominated your 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 daily work. I would right, imagine. it was just it was just coming to an end. I think when I got there, if I recall correctly um or we were right it was you know it was it was already underway but it was a big deal um and um and then uh and you know and this so then i was there for for that period of time which was great i used that i parlayed that into another job at the state department on the policy side working on economic reconstruction issues in the balkans um and spent uh, a little bit of time overseas working for a special representative who was focused on that. Um, and then Bush won the election, and uh, and once you know after Bush v. Gore, all of the political appointees overseas got pulled back. I was not a political appointee, but I got pulled back with him. So I went back into the legal advisor's office at that point, oh, okay. and. Uh, and worked um, for another about two years uh, in the legal advisor's office. And this time I was working on foreign assistance and appropriations law questions. That's um, interesting because like the, I, I, I'm remembering my like Bush administration history correctly. It was, was it Taft was the legal advisor? Yes, you're good. Uh, yeah. I've, yeah. I've been around. Yeah. Um, but but if, <laughs> if I recall, there was a controversy like that, that he kind of figured in um, a controversy, it could have been later on, over the sort of appropriateness of, of torture, in which he was like one of the dissenters, right? In, in, and wrote like a dissenting legal opinion, right? If, if I'm remembering this correctly. Yeah. So that, so, so the time that I was there, 9 11 happened. Um, and, uh, 
Uh, and so fairly quickly after that, uh, the, all the relevant parts of the U.S. government got swept up in all of these questions around the detention and interrogation program, including the State Department, including the Legal Advisor's Office, which, as you are remembering, um, did play a, did, did a valiant uh, effort and, and played a very important role in trying to dissent from some of the decisions that were being taken around the detention and interrogation program, but ultimately did sort of lose all of those battles and um and it was a very uh, it was a very difficult and challenging time to be in the State Department. And um, it was Colin Powell who was the Secretary of State. Um, and I have been reminding I've been remembering myself and reminding a lot of people what it was like to be in the department at that time because I think that we are likely to see a lot of parallels with what it's like to be in the department now um, in the early years of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Just just in terms of there being kind of excesses and and um, perhaps some policy. Um, that's being drafted by the White House that, you know, career people or even like people that are not as ideologically, you know, uh, akin to what's going on in the White House might might have some some challenges implementing. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, ultimately implementing will be done. Right. And if there's if it's too challenging personally to somebody, presumably leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about people who are career uh, who work in career positions in the State Department and other government agencies is that they do you know, they will implement the policy of whatever the administration is. Um, and again, unless and, and until it just becomes mm-hmm. too personally untenable for them. But more just uh, the, the way that I meant it was that. You have a secretary, and I again, I can't predict exactly how Secretary Tillerson is going to be in terms of um, of the morale and the general feeling for department employees. Um, secretary Powell at that time was wonderful to the department, and he was beloved as a secretary. But yet it was a time when the State Department had incredibly little power in the interagency process. And in, when you look at some of the big battles that were fought during that time, and in particular, the one around the detention and interrogation program, ultimately lost those battles. Mm-hmm. And um, It was like they, they were on one side, but it was like the vice president's office was the one that was really calling the shots that would quash the kind of memos that your office was writing saying this stuff is not legit or legal. I mean, among others, but yes, mm-hmm. I think that, that was largely leading the charge out of that office, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's this funny mix between feeling on the one hand that you are working in a place where your work is respected and where if you have a dissenting opinion on something, you have the opportunity to put that forward and you have have bosses who will protect you and support you um, and fight for you. But on the other hand, you sort of lose the big battles. And over time, that can become a very difficult proposition, too. So even if you feel on a day to day basis, like you're working in a place that values your work and values your opinion, and where you feel comfortable and safe expressing those opinions, um, it nonetheless can become sort of demoralizing over time, right? And I do, I, I do wonder if we're headed into another period that may feel that way for the State Department. And, and that's what um, ultimately led you to leave the State Department? So in part, right, I became increasingly uncomfortable with things that were happening um, uh, and uh, from the United States side. And I also, though, when I had spent some time at the White House, among other things, people had told a number of people had told me about this Council on Foreign Relations Fellowship, the International Affairs Fellowship. And, um, and I decided that it would not be a bad time for me to apply for that fellowship and see if I could at least get a year, um, which is the length of the fellowship outside of the department to think and write about issues that I cared about. And I, I sort of went back to my time working on reconstruction issues in the Balkans. And, and wrote a, a proposal for CFR about doing something actually interestingly on UN transitional administrations in Kosovo and East Timor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did my proposal on that. Um, I got the fellowship and I took a leave of absence. I didn't leave fully the State Department. I took a leave of absence. Um, I ended up at that point going to this uh, think tank in Washington called the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where I started working on something called the Post-Conflict Reconstruction Project. Um, and it just took it just took off in all kinds of directions that I had not expected. Mm-hmm. The Iraq War came, yeah, um, and we did early work on the post-war, um, the, the sort of reconstruction of, of mm-hmm. post-war Iraq. Um, and um, and you know, I one one month I'm like a lawyer in the State Department, and three months later I'm on CNN talking about post-conflict reconstruction yeah, yeah. in Iraq. Well, that was like the super hot issue, right? You had, you had yeah, that yeah, you for had. A while. 
Yeah, yeah. You had, you, you had Iraq, you had Afghanistan. I mean, I remember, I, I you know, I, that's probably like when I was in grad school reading your stuff in like the mid 2000s, late 2000s, you know. Right. No, it was um, in, so I was there from sort of, I ended up being yeah. at CSIS from 2002 to 2005. Yeah. So, so after my year of doing the fellowship there, um, uh, they offered me to stay on and help direct this project, which I did. So I was there all told for two and a half years. And at that point, I actually did resign my civil service position at the State Department and left. And I, you know, I had not necessarily been looking to do that, but, um, but it was a time where I would not have been comfortable going back into the administration. And so it was it fortuitous for me that I had the ability to, um, you know, I had, I had a way out as it were. Um, and so you pretty much spent the dura- the duration of your time of the Bush administration in, in think tank world? Uh, in think tank world and then at the United Nations. So uh, how did you end up joining the, the UN? So this is, um, you know, one of it was it's, it was a funny story. I um, my now husband, uh, then boyfriend was going was moving to New York to go to Columbia, um, where he got his PhD. And, um, and so, you know, we were trying to figure out what was this going to mean for us and whatever. And then I'm sitting at my desk one day, get a phone call completely out of the blue from somebody who I had worked with in the Clinton White House to say that uh, President Clinton, who had just recently been named uh, as the special envoy um, of the the UN Secretary General for tsunami recovery, mm-hmm. that this was after the the, the Asian tsunami in 2004, um, what they were looking to staff up his office. And they had a number of people who had been detailed from, from the UN development program, from UNDP, but they wanted to bring up a couple of people from Washington who had worked in the Clinton White House and who kind of understood um, uh, the, the U.S. government side of working on things. And they had thought of me. And, you know, at another time in my life, I would have said, thank you very much. I'm flattered, but I'm really, you know, thriving in my job here at CF. SIS and I live in Washington and I'm not coming up to New York to do this, but um, it just happened to be that, uh, you know, I, I didn't mm-hmm. mind having a reason to move to New York. So I jumped at the chance um, and interviewed for the job and got it. And that's how I originally came into the UN. So I was the deputy chief of staff in, in President Clinton's office, um, in his in his special envoy office. So, um, so yeah. the, you know, the, the, the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004 is like a, a, clat- a cataclysmic event, obviously, but also kind of reformed how the UN approached humanitarian emergency response, the, the lessons of, of the, the, um, that were drawn from the response to that have informed future emergency responses. But uh, I'm kind of curious to learn, like, what's the dynamic when you have like a, a former US president, someone as popular as as charismatic as, as Bill Clinton kind of leading the charge on a, on a situation like this? Like, I'm sure there are just kind of fascinating you know, stories and, and, and insights you could offer into like that, how that dynamic works in, in the UN system. Cause I know he was also, um, a special envoy for, for Haiti, um, after the, the 2010 earthquake. Right. So, you know, and I don't, I wasn't there at that point, so I don't know how that the Haiti, the Haiti process went. Um, you know, it was a very interesting dynamic because, um, because he, I mean, he was always riding high. He always is. I mean, he's just, as you said, he's so popular, he's so charismatic and he's just so well known. And I think, um, and I think that that led to a lot of kind of, um, frenetic activity and frenziness around, especially if there was any time that he was coming into the office or he was taking a trip and, and it's just it's a it's a staffing model that um, that the UN system is not normally used to dealing with, right? Um, in trying to write papers for and, and organize trips around. I mean, a, a trip of, of President Clinton is a very complicated thing, right? He's going to go to India or he's going to go to Aceh, um, and it's not your run of the mill UN visit to any one of those places because it has all kinds of security implications and then bilateral implications, almost from the U.S. perspective, that just get added on to um, to whatever the the actual purpose of the trip mm-hmm. might be. Um, and that's not a space that UN staff is used to dealing with in um, and around, and it required also inter. In, very regular interaction with the Clinton Foundation where he was based because he didn't he had an office um, which he came to occasionally at the UN but he was in New York he had his office at the Clinton Foundation um, and so um, so we tended to see him um, you know around big events that we might be hosting uh, um, or or because of trips was there like a, a value add then to having uh, President Clinton sort of be the special or be the face of, of uh, you know the tsunami recovery? 
I mean, I think there there's no question that there is value add to it. Um, you know, I think the dissenters uh, and the critics at that time sort of said, oh, it's, it costs so much money. I mean, he wasn't paid to do the job, but just the sort of maybe the added staffing around trips or whatever. Um, but, uh, but the level of attention that can be brought um, and that was brought to the the tsunami recovery effort. Um, I think you couldn't have replicated if you didn't have something like um, like what they decided to do with President Clinton. And it, and it was, as you said, I mean, it was so cataclysmic and just something that the, that we had never really seen. I mean, the the enormity of the loss of life. If you look at just Aceh, where they lost one hundred and thirty thousand people, right, in the span of a few minutes. Um, and and the entire place wiped out, and so it it really did help. And then and then because the recovery was so complicated for so many different reasons, and you had multiple countries that had been affected, um, there was a kind of a coordination that uh, factor that is even more complicated than than a normal humanitarian response. Mm-hmm. But also, you needed some centralizing node because in otherwise it may have it would have just I think been even more difficult than it was to deal with. And so in some ways, the office that was set up and the fact that he was there, um, and if you called and said you were calling from the office of the special envoy, and that special envoy happened to be, you know, former President Bill Clinton, as opposed to somebody else, it just got people's attention and kept people's attention in a way that I think was different. So so the, the benefits outweighed the drawbacks, you'd think? I mean, from my perspective, I think so. But I was so enmeshed in it that I, I'm probably not an objective. You know, I, I can't really speak objectively to it. But I think, um, I think by and large, yes. And there was a there was a real crunch for the first few years, which he only served in that role for about two years. But there was a real crunch at that time, and 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 enormous pressure on the UN system and on the NGOs. And he was also able to bring different actors to the table in a way that might not have been um, usual, right? So not only all of the various UN actors, but also all of the big NGOs that were involved and also the countries themselves um, uh, and bring them around the table to have discussions and check in on progress on, on recovery. And do, you have any, um, do you have any like classic Bill Clinton stories from that time? Um, I don't know that I do. Most of my classic Bill Clinton stories date back to when I was, when I had the, uh, opportunity to travel on some of his overseas trips when he was president. I'm not sure that I really, um, have that many from, uh, from the tsunami uh, time. Um, so, so how did you, uh, then get, get sort of hooked up or, or aligned with the, the Obama administration? So, right. Um, so what ended up happening after I did the tsunami job, I then applied for a job in, in the UN Secretariat working for the Peace Building Support Office in its early um, years. And I did that for a year. And then I worked at the Gates Foundation in Washington for wow. a year. Um, and so that brings us then up to um, uh, President Obama's election in 2008 and the early staffing up of the State Department um, during the transition and um, and leads me back to when I worked at the NSC for Jim Steinberg. So um, so Jim was appointed as uh, deputy um, was nominated to be the deputy secretary of state in the first term of the Obama administration. Um, and I was in touch with Jim, who was playing a big role in the transition process at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked me if I would come back um, and work for him again and be his chief of staff in the deputy secretary secretary's office. And I was very, very interested in coming back into government and in coming to work for the Obama administration. Um, and so that's how it happened. So I said, yes, I would be interested. And it was as simple as that. And I, um, and I started almost, you know, I started in the first days of February in 2009. So at the end of the day, it turns out I was an Obama administration lifer. I worked for the full eight years of the Obama full administration. Full eight years. Wow. Okay. So starting yeah. in, in the, the deputy secretary's office and then uh, did you did you just go right from there to uh, I.O.? No, I so I, I was there and then I went to be the principal deputy in the Office of Policy Planning at the State Department, uh, uh, where I was for actually three years, a little bit more than three years. Um, and uh, and then I went to I.O. once I got confirmed. So how did you um, learn that you would be uh, nominated for for the position, a position of the same rank as, as your father, as you mentioned earlier? Yeah. 
Um, so I, uh, you know, I had been talking to various people about sort of my, first of all, that, that I wanted to stay in, um, uh, uh, when, when Secretary Kerry came in, which was not necessarily a given, right? Mm-hmm. Because he brought a number of people of his yeah. own and he did, and I'd had no previous relationship with him or the people he brought in, but, um, but I made a case for myself to stay on. And then, uh, when it became apparent that IO was going to be one of the jobs that was open, mm-hmm. um, uh, a few different people were encouraging me to throw my hat in the ring for it. I was a little bit resistant at first. Um, and then I just decided that I should go for it. So I then I made it clear to the folks right around Secretary Kerry that I was interested in the position. Um, and so I had a few conversations with them. And then I had a conversation with the secretary. And then he said, well, we're going to put you forward for this job, which was an incredible feeling. So then everything just sort of unfolded from there. And how, I mean, how is your, your Senate confirmation hearing? That's got to be, I mean, for someone, you know, you, you're not like a professional politician. That's got to be kind of an interesting dynamic. Had you appeared, I, I met you probably testified as like an expert witness in front of the Senate before, I would imagine. Um, but So I had yeah. once, yeah, okay. um, actually on Iraq reconstruction issues after um, when I was at CSIS. And okay. we had been asked by the Defense Department, a team of us, um, to go over to Iraq in the early days and come back. And we wrote a report about the the reconstruction. And then we went up and, and testified before the Senate. Yeah. But it had been a long time. Um, and it was pretty nerve wracking. And I had it, my, my whole confirmation process was long and drawn out and incredibly painful, I think having very little of anything to do with me Mm -hmm. um really i think nothing to do with me and just having to do with me being swept up in the political winds that were blowing at that time but um so i was all prepared to go up and testify um on i think it was december 12th if i'm remembering correctly of 2013 and um and while i was in the state department van on the way to my hearing we got a phone call in the van to say that mitch mcconnell had just pulled down all his hearings um, for the executive branch of that day in a fit of peak, because I think it was just after the nuclear option had been um, Uh. deployed by Senator Reid and Senator McConnell was really unhappy. And they came out of a Republican caucus meeting and he pulled down all the hearings. So um, my first hearing was aborted. So I was, so I went, we literally went on your way, on your way, literally to, on oh the way. God. So we nonetheless went as a sort of a show of force. And those of us who were going to be on the panel that day um, and showed up in the room and took some pictures behind our placards, but you know, it was done. So then, uh, and that was really um, ended up, I think, delaying a lot uh, my confirmation because there was, despite the, all the, um, the challenges around the confirmation process and the difficulties between the Republicans and the Democrats on the Senate at that time. Um, it was in the early days of Kerry, um, you know, and, and, uh, and there was a slew of folks who were, um, uh, confirmed, uh, uh, right at the beginning of 2014. And I think if I had had my hearing when I was meant to have my hearing, um, it, uh, I would have probably been in and among that bunch, but as it turned out, my hearing was then delayed for two months. Um, and, uh, and so by, and I, I had felt pretty well prepared for the hearing when I was going up the first time. And so by the time I had an extra two months to prepare for my hearing, I felt like I was, um, incredibly well prepared for it, but nonetheless, exceedingly nervous about it, had no idea, expected that probably not that many senators would show But was also nonetheless, it was during a time where um, Senator McCain uh, had been giving nominees and a lot of uh, um, challenging questions on Syria policy in particular. Um, And I was sort of dreading the prospect, I have to say, of going up against (laughs) Senator McCain on Syria policy. But as it turned out... um, I think two senators showed up to the hearing um, and I didn't really get all that many questions. And so I did my opening statement and I took a few questions and they were all ones that I felt very well prepared to answer and all very expected questions. Um, And so it was uh, it wasn't a nothing burger, but it didn't it it wasn't you know, it wasn't that crazy of a hearing for sure. So um, so that part was easy. But then I, I ended up having to wait 11 months to be confirmed, which was unbelievably painful and torturous. So what was that first uh, conversation with your father, like after you got confirmed? Oh, um, well, I mean, he was, has just been so proud, I think of, of everything, um, that I, I've been able to do over the past few years and especially my getting this position. And, um, so I don't remember exactly what our first conversation was, but, um, but, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's been a huge supporter, um, and, uh, and, and just, 
just incredibly proud and touched, I think, that um, that I sort of followed it in his footsteps. Is there a plaque somewhere in, in Foggy Bottom uh, recognizing your, your history-making uh, confirmation? You know, there should be. Somebody should think of that. There but I don't think there is. <laughs> um, well, Shiva, thank you so much for your time. This was this was great. Oh, I should ask, actually, before I let you go. So, so what are you up to now? I know you're writing for Foreign Policy. Any other projects um, back to the think tank world, do you think? So I'm trying to figure it out, actually. I'm trying to take some time, which is not easy for a type A personality like me, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to take some time to make sure that I land up in the right place. So I'm doing some writing for foreign policy, as you say, um, and um, and I'm trying to uh, to keep up my, um, uh, my engagement on on all of these issues, especially sort of the in the multilateral space that I am so deeply invested in from a personal and professional uh, point of view at this point. Um, and, and, um, and so hope that I'm going to be able to land something that, that lets me do that. Um, and that lets me continue to fight the good fight on why we have to stay engaged multilaterally and, 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 uh, and keep on the right track. Uh, but I don't, you know, as of yet, I haven't lined it up. So, um, so I'm still working on it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This was great. Okay. Thanks so much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. That was an interesting one. I actually had no idea that there was a such a, a large community of Jews who fled to Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia uh, in the uh, interwar period. The more you know. One last thing before I go, I wanted everyone to know about something I've planned for March. As regular listeners know, I periodically do fundraising appeals when I don't have advertisers, and it looks like March is going to be a dry month. But instead of regular fundraising drive, what I've been doing is setting up interviews and episodes that will be exclusive content for premium podcast members. These are the most amazing, lovely, talented, and smart individuals who are making monthly recurring contributions to the show via the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. For those folks and anyone else who joins the club, I'm taking suggestions for a special series I'm tentatively calling Background Briefings, which will be about 30-minute episodes that offer context and history behind the individuals, institutions, events, and ideas that are currently in the news. Uh, To that end, I've been taking suggestions from my premium subscribers and have a few exclusive episodes lined up, including a brief history of U.S.-China relations, NATO 101, Nuclear Nonproliferation 101, a history of the academic study of international relations, and a background briefing on NAFTA. These are all suggestions that my current group of premium subscribers have asked for. If you want to get in on those episodes when they are released or make a suggestion of other topics, you can join the premium club today simply by following the link on the podcast homepage. Uh, Also, all premium subscribers will get complimentary access to my Don's Digest global news clip service, which is an email I send out every weekday morning that curates the top global news of the day. So again, this is all uh, getting ready for March. Uh, You can join now and make suggestions now for the exclusive content that I will put up in March by going to uh, globaldispatchespodcast.com, clicking on the support the show link. That will take you to uh, a website called Patreon, which is the platform I'm using to secure these recurring monthly contributions. And I prefer to get them in recurring uh, amounts because, frankly, I want to do away with advertising and I want this to be a listener-supported enterprise because advertising takes up so much of my time just trying to chase down advertisers. I'd so much rather put that time into creating great content for you, content that you want me to create. So again, thank you so much. Uh, Something to look forward to in March. And we'll see you next time. Bye.